This morning's scripture reading comes from Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, and reading from the epistles, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. Let us open our ears, our minds, our imaginations, and listen across time and space as we hear God's wisdom in these words. From the book of Job. Now when Job's three friends heard all of these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and so far the Namathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. From 2 Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon, for Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful in my ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. You must also beware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. In my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for their heavenly kingdom. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God in spirit, for the word of God among us. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be truly acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What a week it has been. What a cliche that phrase already is. Over the last two years, we've gotten used to regular breaking news updates of national or international importance. It's tempting to numb out with optimism. It's easy to spiral in fear. It's hardest to stay present 
while acknowledging and feeling all that each momentous happening brings up in us. This week, I have been sitting with my own heartbreak, anger, and even fear at the all-but-certain overturning of Roe v. Wade, even as many of our Black sisters and siblings warned us of this likelihood for years. I worry about the rights established in cases like Loving versus Virginia, Obergefell versus Hodges, that all are based on similar foundations that were laid out in Roe. I feel rage and despair as I watch my own bodily autonomy and worth debated and reduced to my organs and their capacity to support another life. My heart breaks for the lives that need support now through social safety nets, welfare programs, parental leave policies, immigration reform. My soul is swirling with all of their stories. Our tradition holds so many stories of Mary saying yes to carrying forth new life into the world, of Hagar an enslaved woman afforded no choice in bearing a child and suffering in the wake of pregnancy and birth. Of Hannah, every fiber of her being yearning for motherhood. Of Elizabeth, overjoyed with an unplanned, unexpected pregnancy. These are their stories and these are our stories. As a church, it is our calling to hold space and sit with one another no matter the story, to bear witness to pain, to share in joy, to tenderly hold fear, to meet Christ in everything, be it the suffering Christ, the resurrected Christ, or the Christ that upended the tables of injustice. And so before I begin the sermon I had originally planned to preach today, I just want to take a moment to say now that in whichever way Christ is showing up in your heart this week, know that you are loved, you are worthy, and you are welcome. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. Here's a quiz. Let's say your spouse has a friend who will be coming to your city for two weeks on business. This friend sends you an email and asking, hey, can, can I stay with you for a couple weeks while I'm in town? Has this friend committed a gross violation of etiquette? To quote writer Andrea Donderi, this is a classic case of ask culture versus guess culture. In some families, you grow up with the expectation that it's okay to ask for anything at all, but you've got to realize that you might get no for an answer. This is ask culture. In guess culture, she says, you avoid putting a request into words, unless you are pretty certain the answer will be yes. Guest culture, it depends on a tight net of shared expectations. 
A key skill is putting out delicate feelers. If you do this with enough subtlety, you won't even have to make the request directly. You'll get an offer. Even then, the offer might be genuine or it might be pro forma. It takes even yet more skill and delicacy to discern whether you should accept that offer that you were hoping for. Now, a somewhat clumsy example of that might be someone saying, well, yeah, I'm coming to town to, on business next month. It's just been such a nightmare finding hotels. Everyone must be in town for commencement or something. Everyone must be in town. I can't find a hotel. How's that guest room coming along? Guest culture operates under the assumption that it's rude to say no to a request, and even ruder to put someone in the position of having to say no. And so it is the responsibility of the asker to determine whether or not their request is something the askee would be willing to do before they even ask it. Ask culture, on the other hand, says that we are only responsible for our own boundaries, and so if you want something, ask for it. And it's up to the askee to say yes or no according to their own agency. And now I recognize I'm probably oversimplifying it more than a little bit, since there are many cultural factors at play and power dynamics change the context of these kinds of interactions. But for the sake of getting out of here by noon, let's assume that we are speaking about folks who are on equal footing with one another. So just as we often speak about being called to be Easter people in a Good Friday world or resurrection people in a crucifixion world, I think today's scripture calls us to be ask culture people in a guess culture world. Which brings us back to this morning's scripture readings. Job's friends hear what he's going through. They hear where he's coming from, what he's been through, where it hurts, and they go to be with him. They grieve with him and hold space for him. The advice and brainstorming comes in a later chapter. But for now, they just offer a ministry of presence. Rubbing ashes on themselves and wailing, they offer up their own physical manifestations of their friend's grief. They honor it by externalizing it. Anyone who has seen the TV show The Wheel of Time can remember a scene where there was collective external grieving. This is an incarnational act of friendship, of devotion and empathy. Similarly, Paul wastes no time making his needs known. He needs companionship, asking, please come visit me as soon as you can. He also needs witness to the wrongs done to him. He needs to be heard. Paul goes on to list in his letter the ways he has been hurt, memorializing his experience and inviting his correspondent to acknowledge Paul's victimization. This kind of incarnational care is so simple, and it is so 
so difficult to embody when we are hung up, when we are strung up, when we are caught up in guess culture, in a culture that strips us of our agency and autonomy, that shames our nose and forces us to dance mental gymnastics, tentatively testing one another's boundaries instead of simply allowing them to show us what they are. Our culture wants us to believe that if you ask someone their needs, you are duty and etiquette bound to meet them, whatever the answer. Our culture wants us to believe that it is rude to say no, so don't you dare ask someone what they need unless you are prepared to say yes to whatever they name. But the Bible teaches us, the Bible teaches us that asking what do you need is not a sneaky guest culture reassurance that you can meet the need. It's not an unconditional blank check offer to carry out the task that is named in response. Asking what do you need is a moment of connection, of witness, of creating sacred space for someone to search within themselves and identify their hurts their yearnings, to discover where they are at and name where they need to go from there. Because that is the point of asking. If we jump to focusing on solutions, we are skipping that moment of incarnation. If we skip ahead to trying to meet that need, we are centering our own desire to fix the pain because it is so painful for us to witness. It is hard, yes, to sit with and bear witness to the pain of our dear ones, of any child of God. And yet, and yet, that is what God has done for us through Christ, to bear witness in the most incarnational way possible to our pain, to our joy, to our suffering, to our hope. And that is what we are called to do for one another. And we find that the more we are able to hold space for one another in this way, the more attentive we are to our own needs. And the more attentive we are to our own needs, the more space we are able to hold for each other. And any tension awkwardness or resentment start to melt away. And that resentment had likely built up because when we feel like we aren't allowed to ask for things, we can bristle when other people do ask. Why do you think it can be so hard to raise money in culturally Protestant New England where the authenticity and earnestness of a direct ask is often the last resort. When I was in Detroit last weekend for my NGLI seminar, we worshiped with a local church that Sunday. I love a good field trip. I noticed a page in their bulletin, and I saved it because I'm a nerd. It was devoted entirely to tithing. It had some scriptural descriptions and justifications for tithing, that the community read aloud in unison as their offering invitation. 
that was pretty cool. They read it with more vigor than they read the call to worship, than they read the invitation to communion. They were about tithing. But what really struck me was this little chart. You can't see it from this far away. But it listed the weekly breakdown of various annual incomes from $22,000 a year to $150,000 a year. And then it had a column that listed what 10% of that income would be, and a column for 12%, and a column for 15%. So you can see it quiet, that's what it looks like. Because this church, whose median household income was $35,000, in a city that went bankrupt in 2013, could safely assume that if a person wasn't giving 10%, it was because they were giving more than 10%. And we visitors, we could tell that this was really a part of their culture because we were worshiping in a beautiful, state-of-the-art, expansive new building that was built in 2005 that the congregation and community had rallied to fund and develop. This congregation and community who started off worshiping in a funeral home in the 60s had developed such a rich shared history of generosity and abundance, and they saw every week in worship how their gifts were multiplied. Can you imagine that? Our stewardship team has done an incredible job of leaning into this kind of countercultural authenticity this season, telling us exactly what our church needs to fund our budget drawing back the curtain on how our budget is divided up amongst the various ministries of this congregation. They've laid bare what we need to continue forward. And you can read their devotionals in your email inbox each day. You can listen to their testimony in the videos that they've put together and the offering invitations this season. Or you can turn to your neighbor in your pew after worship, or you can pause this stream and talk to those in your household, and ask them what they need from this community's ministry. Ask yourself what you need from this community's ministry. It doesn't matter if you have no money to give or if you have enough that you could single-handedly fund our entire budget. We'll strike that. If you could fund our entire budget with a single gift, come see me afterwards and we'll talk. Yes, amen. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> but what I mean is that by turning our hearts just to that incarnational moment of holding space to boldly proclaim what we need, we open the door for abundance and generosity to multiply and fill our community. Because as the good book says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of these things shall be added unto you. Amen. <laughs>